Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Today, my name is Terry Fletcher. So today, I want to talk about a subject that actually has come across my desk a few times in the last couple of months. And this is relating to ICD-10 codes and should I code the definitive condition or sign and symptoms because there's that ongoing debate with ICD-10-CM and diagnosis coding. Should we code the complaint, the sign or symptoms, or go right to the definitive diagnosis? Or now since with COVID, there's some things that you can actually assume code. And I don't like to assumptive code at all. But when is it appropriate to code both? And do the payers really look at that? And is it affecting your reimbursement? I know it will affect your um, Medicare Advantage and value-based care and obviously your HCC coding. So we want to make sure that you're capturing correctly. You are able to code for both when it's necessary, but also a look of when it could affect your reimbursement as well. And we want to make sure that uh, you're covered on all that. So let me take a look first of all in the general coding guidelines of ICD-10. So it does instruct that codes describing symptoms and signs are acceptable for reporting when your physician or the provider has not established a related definitive diagnosis. So what does that mean? That means they've confirmed it either with a test or a lab or an exam that something exists beyond what the patient's complaining of. Um, Chapter 18 of the ICD-10-CM It's um, titled Symptoms, Signs, and Abnormal Clinical or Laboratory Findings and Not Elsewhere Classified Codes. So it's the R section. We like to call it R00.0 to R99. This contains many of the symptom symptom codes, but not all of them. Some of them um, you may also find in a different area as well. And it also includes codes for ill-defined conditions where no diagnosis, they call it classable, classifiable elsewhere is recorded. And so there might be categories of um, cases where no specific diagnosis can be made or signs or symptoms existing at the time of the initial encounter, but maybe they were transient or not determined or something else that they call a provisional diagnosis when patient fails to return for further investigative care um, to figure out exactly what they were complaining of. And then it actually goes on to say, do not report sign and symptoms when a confirmed diagnosis uh, has been made. So, and if the sign or symptoms are integral to the diagnosis. So for, for example, if the patient's experiencing ear pain, okay, but the diagnosis has been made that it's otitis media, the ear pain would be an integral part to the otitis media, so you wouldn't code it separately. So a symptom code is used with a confirmed diagnosis only when that symptom is not really associated with that confirmed diagnosis. So it's our responsibility as coders to understand that, they call it that pathophysiologic physiology, it's early for me, and or possibly to query the provider when there's not enough information. But we have to be able to determine if the sign symptoms um, may be reported or if they're, again, integral to the definite definition of the diagnosis that we already figured out. Now, sometimes we can code the sign or symptoms if they are um, maybe not part of that disease process or we have to, or the instructions say, code an additional code. So, you know, for example, here's something that comes up all the time in cardiology, which many of you know that is a specialty of mine. So let's say that the patient has chest pain 
and the physician hasn't determined yet that the patient really has heart disease, but they've got chest pain, maybe some shortness of breath. And so they do an EKG. It's They call it abnormal. So they're finding some changes that they want to take a look at further. Well, in that scenario, you would code all of that until they had a more definitive diagnosis. So let's say then the next step was to take them to the cath lab for a heart cath. And now they find that the patient does have um, you know, maybe atherosclerotic heart disease, or they've got something within, let's say, um, the right coronary artery, they find a lesion or a blockage. And so now they want to go in and treat it. Well, now when you move forward with the stenting, let's say, or an intervention, you wouldn't fall back to the um, the chest pain because that's now been definitively uh, figured out what it actually is and where, it, uh, where where you're going with that. But let's say the doctor during that procedure also decided that they were going to um, do an abdominal ortogram during the heart cath. And let's say that they said, you know, because this patient also has listed hypertension, well, it would have to be clearly listed that the patient had that. And because obviously if you're doing an abdominal ortogram, chest pain or any kind of heart disease is not going to cover that. So you would have to be able to find something within that report that would be definitive to be able to cover that. Another thing that comes up, and this is a question that comes up all the time. What if the patient has a complaint and we then find something from the diagnose, from the diagnostic, and then we move on with a definitive diagnosis to um, elevate the care? So an example here, and I'll just stick with cardiology for a second. Let's say we, we did have that chest pain and um, shortness of breath. We went ahead and abnormal EKG. We went ahead and did a cath, moved on with the intervention. Well, can we code the, the sign or symptoms for the cath and then the um, CAD for the intervention? Yes, because one does not, you're elevating care. So you're building kind of a, a story on the patient, which is very clear that they do want that. Um, now, if you just did the CAD, can you get paid for both? It depends on the payer. So the payer might say, if you already knew the patient had coronary artery disease, why are you doing a heart cath? So you have to paint a picture of what you're doing. Let's say we're an orthopedic. Patient's coming in and they've got um, chronic shoulder pain and uh, it's been bothering them a long time. Doctor doesn't know what it is. Takes an x-ray, still not really definitive. Uh, decides that you know after exam that the patient may have, see what I did there? May have some maybe some um, tendonitis or bursitis or maybe just some arthritic changes there that they are trying to find out and they decide that maybe it's just some tendon inflammation or maybe it is a frozen shoulder. I've been diagnosed with that before um, for you know certain women over a certain age. So they, they may want to take a, maybe provide a trigger point injection, or they may want to, um, you know, order an MRI or something like that. But you're going to have to have indications or sign or symptoms before you can keep moving with your um, diagnostics. So sometimes it's, it's necessary to prove why are you doing this? And then sometimes once you get that definitive, uh, then you can uh, move on into your procedures. Also look at your local coverage decisions and determinations because they'll have lists of diagnoses that cover things. And I'm not saying you should be uh, motivated to code those just because they get paid, but definitely let your physician know that I need to know what level of care you're at because I can get paid for the initial encounter, but unless you can definitively tell me that that patient has tendonitis or, you know, a rotator cuff tear or something like that, it may be hard 
hard to get paid. So we need to continue our search or our diagnostic, um, I guess, adventure to figure out what's going on with that patient. Comes up with uh, GI. Patient comes into the hospital. They've got a um, rectal bleeding, and now we have to determine if it's actually a GI bleed or something that may need a diagnostic colonoscopy. Well, for the initial encounter, do I still bill the the um, rectal bleed? Yes, because that's for the encounter. You don't know what the patient had until you work them up. And as soon as the physician knows what they have, then they go beyond and say, okay, now we're going to go ahead and do an endoscopy. And that's the diagnosis you use for that. So now once you pass on, go past that, would you then include the rectal bleeding after that? No, not unless it wasn't related. So let's say that it was determined after they did the colonoscopy that it was actually maybe um, a thrombosed hemorrhoid or something like that. Now you have to backtrack or realize that we've now got a definitive diagnosis. The other thing that you want to keep in mind too, and this is with where it gets a little bit tricky, patients are coming in with, let's say, elevated blood pressure, but the physician still doesn't feel that they have hypertension or patient is coming in maybe with some uh, labs lab work that looks like it's a little bit elevated, maybe on their cholesterol, but they're still not willing to label them as having hyperlipidemia. So things like that are important to read the note and really make sure that your physician has def- definitively called what it is before you make assumptions that it is what it is. We just don't want to label a patient on what you think they might have until it's definitive what they do have. It makes a difference when it comes to their insurance coverage. Um, I know that a lot of the Medicare Advantage plans are getting in trouble for uh, coding too high and capturing HCC, so hierarchy codes, and just for money. They're not doing it because the patient has active, you know, hypertension today. They're doing it because the patient had an elevated blood pressure with no definitive test saying that that's what they have. So, and remember, there are rules about how determining uh, how you determine those things to, to make a definitive diagnosis. So sometimes, yes, you can build a sign or symptoms when it leads to a definitive diagnosis. If you have a definitive diagnosis or health or, or uh, figured it out, then you would omit those sign or symptoms. And then if it's completely un- unrelated during that encounter where you have a different diagnosis um, and then there's something else that you're also dealing with, you know, the patients, oh, by the way, this hurts, then you can include and link that uh, sign or symptom um, to that line item on your claim form. So always just, if you're ever in doubt, well, first of all, you can be part of our membership service. Happy to take a look at it for you. So always take a look at that, but you may have to query your physician if you just don't know which way to go. And if you should give them the diagnosis that may collectively from a uh, I guess from a, a sign or symptom standpoint, you may think it could be definitive, but until the physician actually says it is, then you have to hold back and continue with your sign or symptoms. We don't want to overcode or undercode, but we definitely don't want to label or incorrect code when it, we talk about diagnosis codes. So I wanted to bring up something that's been really bugging me on the telehealth changes and everything. And I can't seem to get a lot of doctors that understand why it's important for them to get back to the office and not to continue to treat the patients from their home. Um, There's a lot of 
I, I know that it's cheaper, but we can't always look at that as best for the patient. Also, most of the Medicaid information out there is saying that you can't force the patient to have a telehealth visit. Um, Medicare is the same. There's like, you can't force them. If they want to see you in person, then you need to get back to the office. But just remember, at the end of 2023, the flexibility for using your home as a separate location um, will change where you have to add it to your enrollment form with Medicare and any federal program and with commercial plans. They want to know where you're at. Well, what that means is as soon as you add that uh, address, now that goes on a public website. Every single website, in fact, where you treat patients. And you may be saying, well, I'm not going to bring them to my home. Well, that doesn't matter. Medicare doesn't let you have a virtual clinic. You have to be seeing patients in any clinic that you're also doing telehealth. Same with Medicaid. And so now let's say you're a pain management physician and some crazy sees that on a public website, thinks you might have drugs at your house. And regardless if you're in a gated community or not, look at the world right now. They'll find a way to get to your house and get to your family. Do not do that. And I'm not trying to scare anybody. Well, yes, I am. I'm absolutely trying to make sure that you are aware of the safety concerns of staying at home and having to list your home address on a public website. And if that gets people mad at me, I don't care. I really would like to see physicians get back to the office, not put themselves or their family in danger, and also not put patients in a compromising position where, you know, they're having to ask you to please come back to the office. Now, it's not many physicians, but there's a handful out there that are just comfortable now with treating patients from their home, and they don't realize the ramifications of what could happen if they continue not to get back to the office. And so that was just one concern that I have as far as safety. And it's there's more as far as compliance. But yeah, because remember, so I'm in California in the area I'm in, I actually did some due diligence and checking. Let's say that you were in where I am in, in Laguna Beach, and you wanted to have um, your office listed. And you said, I don't care about that other stuff that Terry said, I'm just going to do it. Okay, well, then you also have to go to the city and get permits that says that you are a commercial building now, that you are a commercial um, offering in your structure where you actually have to be able to have people come in and out, even if you don't. You also have to have, if you have a pool, you'd be in trouble because that's a safety concern. So there's all kinds of things when you start taking a business into your home that you have to be aware of, especially a medical practice. So if you haven't heard anything today, I hope that's one thing that you do here and you reconsider if you're one that's deciding, well, maybe I'm going to continue in my home, um, you know, as a business. So as, as my uh, location, I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. But that's something you have to make a decision for yourself and hopefully um, you'll make the right one. So a personal tidbit, and I just wanted to, you know, thank a lot of you that have been sending me these wonderful messages and just some really nice feedback uh, when you like things that we're doing. I know Emmanuel Jean, thank you very much. Um, Virginia uh, Timmons, uh, Melissa, Kathleen, Rachel, I mean, Rachel Anderson, you've been great as far as some of the the things that you've been sending to me. So um, I really appreciate the fact that you guys are all reaching out and saying just some really nice things. There's been also, oh, a side note, there's been a lot of, I think I've taught four telehealth 
uh, webinars in the last month. And Medicare has updated, CMS, I should say, has updated their information in between those webinars. And so also I wrote an article for AAPC for telehealth that was published on May 2nd, and it's already dated. So I responded to a question under it um, on the 93 modifier, and then I just wrote up a new blog and just this last weekend and sent it to them. And I said, please put it on your blog because it won't make it to the business monthly because they want our information two months in advance. Well, you can't do that for telehealth because they change everything every day, every week. So I just wanted to give you a heads up that just make sure that you know what is the current information on that. And then lastly, hey, I am in Napa in two weeks. I'm so excited. I feel like I'm becoming a hermit. I'm working remotely and always in my home office. I feel like I'm working seven days a week nowadays. So I'm excited to get out and finally just get some sunshine, get some wine and spend some time with uh, my family. So my husband and I are going, my daughter and her husband are flying in. Um, Their best man and uh, his wife from their wedding, who was also in their wedding, are flying in. And then my daughter's best friend from Colorado. So seven of us should be having a really good time uh, the first weekend in June. So we're very excited about that. All right, everyone, have a great rest of your week. Make it a great day. And thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net podcast producer Joe Kuzma, music producer Assassin Music.